Well, good morning to you. It's good to see each of you this morning. Thanks for making what we're doing here this morning uh, a part of your Sunday. For joining us from home, I want to say good morning to you. Thanks for being with us and and considering what what we do this morning and, and worship together as we uh, join our voices and our hearts with each other and worship as we seek to strain to believe what we what we believe and uh, and the way that what we're doing this morning intersects with the moment that we're in the cultural moment that we that we've been watching over the last few days I, I just want to say to you this morning that there's no place I'd rather be and I'm so grateful to be uh, in worship and gathered worship with each of you this morning so thanks for being here uh, in God's providence I actually can't think of a better text for us to look at this morning than, uh, than what we're coming across in Luke chapter 6. Uh, if you remember, right before Advent, we were studying the, the life of, of Jesus and his public ministry, which led us right to the beginning of the Sermon on the Plain. And, uh, and we're just picking up where we left off there. And uh, in Luke chapter 6, just to set the context for you a little bit, is Jesus has been performing miracles and, and teaching and has attracted a very large crowd. So when he says these things, he's speaking to a very large crowd of his disciples uh, in, a, in a plane. And, and uh, um, so he's speaking to them. And, he, and what he's describing to them in these passages, and really in, in, this, in this whole sermon, is what the life of one who seeks to follow him should look like. And he's describing very counterintuitive kingdom impulses that he's calling us to in this passage. What we value, what we hate, how we're to treat people. All the questions that that fill our lives and our our hearts, I think, are really attended to in some way in the sermon. And this morning, what we're looking at is Jesus' ethic of love. The the kingdom ethic of love that Jesus is calling us to here in here in chapter six. So, look with me uh, here, verses twenty seven through thirty six, and hear the word of the Lord. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those that do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth would be clear and helpful to your people. And I ask that the meditations of our hearts would rest comfortably in your sovereign will, secure in you, and that you would help us to hear what you're saying to us this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a story about the only time I've ever gotten in an argument in an airport. 
It was, it was fall, late fall of 2011, and uh, I'm flying back into St. Louis, which is where we lived at the time, and uh, I don't remember where I was coming from. Uh, I do remember how cold and gray it was, much like the days that we're experiencing here, and the big thing to know about that day was the St. Louis Cardinals were playing in, uh, in an elimination game in the World Series against the, uh, the Texas Rangers. It was game six, big deal, and I was flying into town with some Rangers fans who were gripped by what I can only call a tribal conviction uh, of what the Rangers were going to do to the Cardinals that night. And uh, every now and then someone says something or does something, you know this feeling, that just kind of grabs your soul a little bit and you can't just let it go. You have to respond to it. And that is just how I let myself get caught in a public airport in a verbal argument with fans about what's going to happen in a game that night. And uh, I look back on it, and I still don't really understand the, the movements in my own heart that kind of led to that happening. But I think it's fair to say that somewhere along the line, I had developed a real passion for, for Cardinals baseball. And what's funny about this whole thing is that when I had moved to St. Louis three years before, baseball wasn't even interesting to me. Like, if you had asked me to make a top 10 list of the things that, that, that grab me or, or my passions in life, baseball wouldn't have even occurred to me to write that down. And uh, there are so many ways that my time in St. Louis shaped me, like the church that I served and the seminary that I studied at. Those were deeply formative years. But it, somewhere along the way, the people in that sweet Midwestern city shaped me into, into caring deeply about Cardinals baseball. Now, what I'm describing to you is really simple. It's a common, simple phenomenon that happens very normally and easy amongst us called corporate formation. You've probably heard of it. It's the way a, it's the way a group of people kind of shape a, 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 a common loves, common passions, even common enemies. It, it just happens very normally and easily and, and without, um, often without us even noticing that it's happening. And if you're ever wondering if, if this phenomenon called corporate formation is real, just take a moment and check the affections of your own heart. See what they are and see how they might line up with the people that are around you. And it's here, this way that we have of adopting kind of a common love, which is in a lot of ways what we do here in worship this morning, um, uh, that Jesus speaks very profoundly to us. Because what he said is that um, loving the way that the world loves and loving what the world loves is nothing special about us. Like, this is so staggering that we could spend the rest of our lives trying to consider the depths of it and still not kind of come to the bottom of it and what it means for us. Extending love, simply extending that love to those who love you back is really nothing special, he says. It's completely normal. And Jesus, speaking to a bunch of his followers, is saying, if you presume to follow me, if you are going to be one of my followers, there is a higher love that we are called to, that he calls us to. And that's what he's describing here. And when he talks about loving your enemies, is the, is the higher, greater, deeper, more profound love that Jesus is calling us to. And that's what we're talking about this morning, really. Jesus' kingdom ethic of love and love that extends even to our own enemies. 
And I'm going to ask three questions. One, what is Jesus actually asking for? What's he calling for from us? Why is it so important? It seems very critical to Jesus that we understand this. And then how do we do it? What, what is he calling for? Why is it important? And how do we do it? We see what Jesus is calling for right at the beginning. Okay, In, in uh, verse 27, he says, I say to those who hear, love your enemy. The same as the first question for me, who are our enemies? And uh, like, do we even have enemies in these lives? And Jesus helps us here as he elaborates. He says, do good to those who hate you. All right, so people who hate you. Um, uh, Bless those who curse you, those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. An enemy is simply one who is opposed to you. Someone who might seek your harm or say difficult things to you or about you to other people. There's somebody who might threaten you in some way. Um, An enemy is someone who insults you. Think about it this way. An enemy is someone whose non-existence in the world you, you might want or it might make your life easier. That would be an enemy. So as we go through this, I really want you to think about who your enemies might be. Um, like this, this, this passage is only valuable to you if you can actually picture their names and their faces, right? So who are your enemies? And, and what is Jesus is calling us to do when we see our enemies is embody a kind of a selfless love directed toward them. It's very simple. Uh, that he's calling us to, but it's very radical. It's a radically selfless love that somehow thinks little about ourselves or our own good. And even further, he is calling us to provide for those who seek our harm. So in the midst of calling us to selfless love, he's actually calling us to look at them with a kind of a generous sympathy. Look at verse 29. He says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, that's probably a reference to someone who uh, slaps you as a kind of an insult. That's probably the best way to understand that passage. It's not talking about like persisting in an abusive relationship or anything. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. But he's saying um, to someone who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other cheek. If someone steals your cloak, like your outer jacket, then give them your shirt also. Um, and then going further in verse 30, he says, if someone steals from you, don't do whatever it takes to to get it back. And I'm describing this as generous sympathy because it's just simply unusually generous to return hatred with loving action, to actually have somebody take something from you and to seek to give them more. That's that's like the definition of a high form of of generosity. And it's unusually sympathetic to, instead of reducing... Uh, our vision of our enemies to the to like the worst form of themselves to look at them and try to understand the needs or the desires or the fears that inform their oppositional action towards you. That's what Jesus is calling us to is a, is a generous sympathy directed toward our enemies. And this can only be informed by what I want to call a holy imagination. That's in verse 31. This is commonly known as the golden rule. But this is really the description of a a holy imagination. Look at it with me. It says, as you wish, like imagine what you wish that others would do to you, do so to your enemies. What What he's calling for is to let our imaginations 
run wild with the ways that we would love to be treated, the, the things that we would love for people to say to us or do for us or think of us and then extend that generosity that we crave and give that simply to people that are against us. It's unbelievable. It's such a high call. Let me give you an example. I came across this story recently about a former East German communist dictator, if you can believe it. This guy named Eric Honecker, and this is after the Berlin Wall collapsed in 1989. And when that happened, Eric Honecker, uh, it was possible that there was no one more hated in all of East Germany than this man at that point. He lost all of his prestige. He lost his job. He lost his income. He lost, he and his family even lost their home. And they had no prospects of like how they were going to make a life and make their way going forward. And uh, they, were just, uh, they, they were just full of enemies. They were an enemy, and so they were full of enemies when all of that happened. And at, at this point, um, what, what happened was that uh, a pastor named, and I don't know if I can pronounce his name correctly, it's a Christian pastor named Uwe Homer, and his family heard about what happened to them and decided that they would take a disgrace, this disgraced family that was hated by their whole country and take them even into their own home. And this story gets even more unbelievable when you think about the Homers. They had 10 kids and uh, eight of their 10 kids were denied higher education because of policies that discriminated against Christians. And who was in charge of the education system was Margot. Uh, Honecker, the, the, the wife of this man, Eric. So they, they, this is the example of a, of a family that looked at another family that was suffering and brought them into their own home. They simply imagined the generosity that they would have loved to have received, and they extended it to their own enemies. It's, it's just unbelievable to see it when it happens. And I know I, I titled this sermon Unusual Love, but the more that I think about this, this is really unnatural love. Because what's most striking about this to me is it's asking us to go against some of our most basic instincts of self-interest and self-protection. In fact, it almost sounds as if Jesus is calling us to a, a love that's so profound and so difficult and so hard to grasp precisely because it, he is calling us to carry ourselves with almost like an utter disregard for our own welfare. And as we look at this, we get the sense that the stakes are very high for Jesus on this one. Like this, this, is, this is something that he is talking about that is obviously of extreme importance to him. Why would this be so important to Jesus? Well, first we see because it, 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 it reveals to our, uh, loving our enemies reveals who we are as God's people. Look at verse 35. Love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. That's a Hebrew way of saying you will be like the Most High. You will be like God himself. And so in this passage, what Jesus is calling us to live in accordance with, with who we are as his adopted sons and daughters. And if your faith is in Christ this morning, let me remind you who God says you are in Christ. All of these, these might be the, these are the, 
according to the Bible, these are the truest things about you if you are in Christ. You've been made alive in Christ. You've been, the Bible says that you've been rescued from your sin in Christ. You've been raised from the dead. You are adored and celebrated in Christ. The Bible tells us that God rejoices over you with loud singing. That's true of who you are. Your greatest needs are met in Christ. And when the time comes for you to face God in judgment, your approval in that moment is secured by Christ for you. And finally, you will be exalted and glorified in Christ. Your end is secure because of who you are in Christ. That is true of you. Listen, if you're ever wondering about who you are, that's just the beginning of the picture the Bible paints about how, what God sees when He sees you. And if all of this is true, and all of this is secured on your behalf by Jesus Christ who loves you, then what is the worst thing that your enemies can do to you? Look, as sons of the Most High which is what Jesus calls us to, we should be like the least threatened, least defensive, least controlling people. And every time we seek to serve our enemies, we are revealing something that's true of us about who we are in Christ. We are revealing who we are. And in so many ways, in so many ways, our ability to embrace this idea of loving our enemies back It will tell us something about how much we treasure the truth of the gospel that was given to us. But that's not all it reveals. It reveals to us something that's really important about who God is. We we reveal to our enemy who God is. Verse 35, this is what Jesus says, For God is kind to the ungrateful and and the evil. It says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Listen, the, other, the only other reason this is so important to Jesus is simply because the way that we carry ourselves in the world reveals something to the world around us about who God himself is. Uh, and if we love with an entirely ordinary love, if we, if we carry ourselves as those who, find, who simply only, like we, we restrain our love only toward the lovable, then we, we are pointing to an entirely ordinary God who only loves in ordinary ways. But if we love in extraordinary ways, extending love even to our enemies in the way that Jesus is calling us to, then we are putting on display the irresistible and the matchless love of God that has the power to draw the world to Himself and even melt the hardest of hearts we are, putting in lo- we are putting God's love on display that, the, that we need and the entire world needs. It's one of the reasons, I know it might have seemed weird, but this is one of the reasons that I had us read that little excerpt from Leviticus 19. Because I wanted to see from the very beginning that God was calling his people to carry themselves with an ethic of love that sought to take care of those around them. That, that, that's very close to God's heart. That's what he is calling us to, and that's what he's informing us of. And Jesus is, and it's here we see the heart of God is all wrapped up in what Jesus is saying in this passage. Because Jesus, Jesus wants to win the heart of his enemies. 
Jesus wants to soften the heart of his enemies and draw them to himself. And he's calling us to the same kind of desire to win the enemy that Jesus has. And when you imitate God's love, you're putting him on the world for all to see. You are putting, you are participating in God's mission to the world when you take on the role of just simply being this broken vessel, making our way forward, giving this generous, sympathetic, selfless love to those who are around us. That's how, that's this this that's what the, that's why this is so important. Now, if you're like me, um, I don't want to presume, but let me just tell you what I was thinking all week as I stared at this passage. This is an incredibly high call, Jesus. This feels incredibly difficult. Because while my, my end is secure in Christ, my value in God's eyes are secure in Christ, I know I stand forgiven and treasured because of what Christ has done for me, my enemies can still hurt me, right? And they can hurt the people that I love. And, and even furthermore, I know, like this, I know this self-protective instincts in my own heart. And I know how easy it is, like almost impulsively, to want to strike back when somebody hurts me. This all sounds great, Jesus, until I actually try it. How in the world can we even seek to live up to this incredibly high call that Jesus is putting on his followers in this passage? From one weak and, uh, and poor, loving friend to enemies to another, the only way that we will ever hope to, to even grow in advancing in, 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 uh, in, in loving with this kind of strength that he calls us to, directed at people that are very hard for us to love, the only way we will grow in that is by remembering all the ways that we have been loved. Romans 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When we think about our enemies, we have to remember the unusual, unnatural love of God that we enjoyed when we were God's enemies. It's the only way that this can make any sense to us. And if you find yourself struggling to inhabit the generous sympathy that Jesus is calling us to, just as I do, then I have good news for you. Because Jesus embodied this generous sympathy when he looked at you with eyes of committed love and saw our restless wanderings and our spiritual poverty, and he cared for our deepest needs. That Jesus gave us that generous sympathy that he's calling us to. And if you find yourself struggling with selfish, selfish love just as I do, then I have good news for you. That Jesus is the one who embodied selfless love. When he came to be with us, when he resisted temptation, when he stood at his body in the crucifixion, all so that one day he could call his enemies his friends. 
Listen, Jesus isn't calling us to do something that he isn't willing to do. He's asking us to follow him by taking his life on as our own. And as his followers, who have the joy of no longer finding ourselves enemies of God, we have the privilege of extending the same love to our own enemies. It's a privilege. You want to know what's funny? about that stupid argument that I had in St. Louis Airport all those years ago. I know exactly what happened in the game that night. I know who played. I know who made the big hits. I probably could even remember the lineup and some of the averages. I certainly knew it then. If you asked me today what my thoughts were on the Cardinals organization, I wouldn't be able to tell you. It's almost like I, I needed to be around those people in order to love what they love. Listen, if, you're, if we're going to grow in our love for en- our enemies, we need to grow in our love for Jesus. And we just need to be around each other. And we need to find ways to be around him. We need to study him. We need to cultivate a steady gratefulness and have our affections reordered by him so that our communal life as God's people can grow more and more to resemble the love that he's calling us to. And what a testament to the world that that could be. Can you imagine anything more needed in our city, in our homes, and in our country than the people of God gathering, bearing witness to the opportunity to love our neighbors? What would stand out more? Let me pray. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would give us such a deep affection for you and such a deep heart of gratefulness for you that we would be moved to love even our enemies like this, like just like you call us to. And give us such a great sense, a seated confidence in all that you've accomplished for us that we would be able to, to be willing to risk in these ways. And Lord, I, I ask that you would just help us to grow. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.